strikes, pandemics, and now name changes, the greatest game ever invented will survive. It's all coming up next on the Gratitude Journal Podcast. This is the Gratitude Journal Podcast. Oh, man, you'll have to pardon my... uh, Hold on just a second. I need to reach for this towel and wipe off. Wow. It is is really hot here in Northeast Ohio. Now to you, Texans or someone in the Philippines... (laughs) (laughs) or maybe even people in St. Louis, where we lived a couple of years, this may not seem all that ridiculous. But we oftentimes don't get 95, 96 degree days in Northeast Ohio with some humidity and with a heat index of over 100. These things don't really happen all too often. Now, luckily, we're kind of used to it because we've lived in a couple of warmer weather spots But there certainly is a lot of whining locally (laughs) about the weather. And yours truly, Matthew here, is uh, really quite grateful that I actually got my lawnmower started. So that's where I was after lunch, mowing the lawn, a mower that would not start for the last two weeks. Don't ask me why. I I even checked the oil, which is something I rarely do. And because usually after wintertime, I mean, really, five months of sitting idle. I pulled the string on that puppy a couple of times, and bam. I mean, it just always starts up. But a couple of weeks ago, I just could not get it to start. So I paid somebody to mow the lawn while I went and borrowed a lawnmower. I bought one of those push mowers. I I just felt very, I just felt very, I don't know, ecological, conservation conscience that I was going to push the mower and get a workout and contribute to society and contribute to the environment. And then the makers of this product kind of screwed up the order. I had to send it back. They did not have a replacement. So I said to Donna today, you know what? I have to go to the mailbox and uh, mail a bunch of stuff uh, to the post office rather. And then I'm going to come back and I'm going to pull the string on this mower and see if it starts up because there are portions of the lawn that aren't brown that needed to be mowed. And I didn't want to have to hire somebody again to do it. And first tug, boom, started. Don't ask me why. So I'm grateful. Hopefully in your world, uh, it is uh, cool and uh, you're not suffering from heat exhaustion or heat maladies. And hopefully, of course, as I like to make sure at the beginning of every podcast so far, I hope you're safe and healthy as the numbers continue to climb. And it's very scary. And it has been scary. In fact, so scary that I spent really a good amount of the night last night involved in several COVID-19 related dreams. Isn't that bad? I mean... I would prefer, rather, that the dream would be about, I don't know, Raquel Welch. But no, I had to dream that I had COVID-19. So, for whatever reason, I did not feel very rested when I got up this morning. And I'm just rolling through the day. And that's what I'm doing. It's a little overcast right now. We're anticipating maybe the chance of isolated storms. Brown lawns could use it. But it is hot. It will temper down as it normally does here in our neck of the woods. 
But so far, that sound was me knocking on the wood of my desk. We are safe and healthy, at least that we know of without testing. I think I mentioned early on in an earlier podcast that my father played in the Pittsburgh Pirates organization. I'm still kind of um, finagling the details from him because I've had a couple of people say to me, wait, your dad played in the show? And he was actually called up for a couple of weekends as a, as a backup catcher. And I think the structure of the minor league system was a little different then. Uh, but I bring that up again because baseball has always been a big part of his life. And while we as kids always grew up with all the sports, I knew pretty much early on that baseball was my preferred sport. And like my father, I wanted to be a catcher. And through Little Leg, I was a catcher. And I donned the tools of ignorance. And he taught me how to crouch, how to call balls and strikes. Of course, he didn't do that in Little Leg. Pitchers in Little League just rear back and throw. And he taught me how to throw a guy out at second base, second base rather, if he was trying to steal. He told me how to guard the plate. He told me how to make sure that I was the captain on the infield. And I needed to let everybody know after every out, okay, that's two outs, one more. And be, be the cheerleader, be the leader, be the guy who runs the show. And there was just something about baseball that appealed to me that same appeal did not seem evident sometimes in other sports. When I was growing up, we had limited amounts of people to actually field a team. And in our pickup games, which really sadly is a byproduct of America as we know it, the pickup baseball game, we would have to make do. We would have to improvise. And the game in our neighborhood that we improvised was basically a game where we used half of the field. So really all that was required when you were in the field was a pitcher and maybe an infielder, maybe playing shortstop and one outfielder. So really you could play with as few as six people. Now, sometimes we would have more than that. And sometimes we would even have a left-handed batter. So for right-handed batters, all of the fielders would be on the left side of the infield. So in order to accommodate the pool of the left-handed hitter, if we had a, or the right-handed hitter rather, if we had a left-handed hitter, then everybody would switch to the other side to accommodate the pool of the left-handed hitter. So the object of the game was that you tried to hit the ball in a space in order to get a man on base. Now, you didn't run any bases. You basically just hit the ball, and that gave you either a man on base or it gave you a home run if you hit it over the fence. We would play this game literally for hours. On a day like today, we would put that water in our jugs. We would pack sandwiches. Whether it was with mom's help or not, we would take our glove, put it on the end of our bat, sling our bat over our shoulder, and right out of a Norman Rockwell painting, 
we would trudge, maybe not arm in arm, but we would trudge up to the field and we would play our makeshift baseball game. Starting early in the morning and sometimes playing until the sun went down and we could no longer see that ragtag ball. And I remember one day playing, waiting my time at bat, and I was playing catcher. So if somebody, if the pitcher threw the ball and one of our hitters missed it, well, they couldn't afford to have a player who was just nothing but a catcher. So we would just catch for the other team and they would do the same for us. Yeah, I remember waiting for someone who was pitching to bend down and tie their shoes. So there was a slight break in the action. And it's almost like I experienced a, a kind of nirvana, almost like a kind of satori, like a, like a feeling in the universe that everything was perfect. The air was still. There were a couple of cars on rows in the distance. I heard their motors kind of purring in the distance. And it was a slightly humid day, maybe not quite as hot as it was today, but it was in the midst of summer. The sun was kind of starting to set, but there was still plenty of light left. And there was almost a, a kind of a haze on the infield. And all I knew at that time is that everything about this game felt right. All of the nuances of the universe were in balance. Everything just seemed perfect. And I remember remarking to myself, it just doesn't get any better than this. This is the perfect game. Even our ridiculous rendition of the perfect game reminded me that this game that we were trying to emulate was indeed perfect. I was putting together a series of packages to mail out to sports talk radio program directors. In an attempt to scarf up business, I haven't spent much in terms of marketing this year for my business. But I decided amongst the audio files that I would put on this thumb drive that I would create a video. And really just a two to three minute video introducing myself and explaining who I was. And I opened the video with me sitting in the stands of an empty ball diamond. And I was inhaling the contents of my glove, just holding the glove up to my face and inhaling strongly. And I did that to make a point that there was really nothing like the smell of a baseball glove. The, the dirt and the, and the sweat and mixing in with the leather. And there was just a singular smell. And as soon as I did it, it took me back to that field, the field at Lehman High School, which was really a football field that we kind of made into our field to play our special little version of the greatest game ever invented. 
and I was standing in left field waiting for the next batter. And the sky was just azure, just perfect blue, not a cloud in it. It was an absolutely delightful morning, late morning. And my glove had kind of a red tint to it. And I recall just putting it to my face and inhaling those wonderfully, decadently delicious aromas of summer and just feeling so grateful that I was able to play this game. I mean, that's what baseball meant to me. And really, to a certain extent, it's still what baseball means to me. I had to give up baseball, really, because in my high school, we didn't have a baseball team. Now that high school has a baseball team. In fact, the year after I graduated, St. Thomas Aquinas High School got a baseball team. But the sports program in the spring was primarily run by the track and cross country program. And the person who was the coach of these two teams almost wanted to make it certain that baseball never became a program because he felt like it would rob people from his very vaunted track and field program. And since then, I mean, 40 years later or more, I've, I've gone out to St. Thomas Aquinas to watch a basketball game or watch a football game, and I see him occasionally at games, and, and there's still a little bit of distaste in my mouth when I would see him. I would never speak with him because I couldn't bring myself to speak with him because essentially when I went into high school, my baseball career kind of ended because there was no way for me to play baseball. So in a large way, I, I kind of blamed it on him. And aside from playing baseball in a 40 and over league, at some point during our time here in Northeast Ohio between trips to other places, I play, aside from that small experience, I've never been able to don a uniform again. And aside from going to a batting cage a couple of times over the past 25 years, I've really never played baseball ever again. So my experience with baseball has been primarily through my love of the Cleveland Indians. I would say the strike year of 1994 was a pivotal time in my baseball appreciation period. Because really for a while, I kind of lost track with baseball. Baseball became less important. I was much more concerned about career. I was much more concerned about getting a girlfriend. Uh, I was much more concerned about whether I wanted to be a priest or not. And when I decided not to be a priest, and I decided that what I wanted to do was what I'd always wanted to do as a child, and that is to sit in front of a microphone and talk into it. I really kind of lost my way with baseball. I didn't follow baseball. I didn't look at a box score. I didn't wear a team hat. And my wife 
who I would later marry on a ball field was a baseball fan. Now, she was a baseball fan, not with statistics and memorabilia and keeping mementos. It's just the act of being at the ball field was very attractive to her. She really enjoyed it. And I didn't really know the depth of her enjoyment until the time of the strike. And this was also the time that Ken Burns released his series on baseball. And she said to me, once teams had kind of reconvened after the strike, she said, you know what? We really ought to go to a ball game sometime. And I remember I was sitting on the sofa and it was about 10 after six. And the television news that was on at the time had a reporter at the ball field at Old Municipal Stadium. And this person was interviewing Herb Score, who was the radio play-by-play guy. And during the course of the interview, Herb was talking about whoever, whatever team was in town. And he said, as the interview was ending, well, come on down to the ballpark. We look forward to seeing all of you. And something hit me, something came over me. And I said to Donna, let's get in the car and go to the game. And she said, well, it's already like a quarter after six. They probably start like in 45 minutes. I said, let's let's go, let's go to the game. And that started my journey back into baseball. It really, it started my journey back into following the Cleveland Indians. I liked the Indians as a kid, but I followed a lot of different teams. And really, the two teams that I followed were the Pittsburgh Pirates because of my father's connection to the Pirates and the fact that all of my family are from West Virginia and in that area of West Virginia, they follow Pittsburgh teams. And it just so happened that during those years as a kid going back to West Virginia every year, the Pittsburgh Pirates were really, really good. They played their games on WTRF Channel 7 out of Wheeling and my grandmother and I would sit there and watch the games. Willie Stargell, Manny Sanguian, Dave Oliver, Rennie Stennett, Richie Hebner, that that crew, Roberto Clemente, the whole crew. I mean, that team was a monster team. And it just so happened that my father played in that organization. So to this day, I have a soft spot for the Pittsburgh Pirates. And before that, I loved the Oakland A's. I loved teams that had style. And boy, did that team ever have style. The mustaches the white shoes, the eclectic personalities, Joe Rudy and Gene Tennis and Sal Bando and Vita Blue and Raleigh Fingers. That was a team right there. But when I got recharged on baseball, it was the Cleveland Indians. They were there. They're the home team. And so during those years in the 90s, the wonderful, evocative, splendid, unbelievable 90s years for Cleveland Indians baseball. Many times you couldn't get a ticket. So people traveled. 
and my wife was more than willing to travel for baseball. I did a count the other day, and combined with the stadiums that still exist, the stadiums that no longer exist, and the stadiums that were kind of rebuilt to replace the ones that did exist, we had been to 23 different ballparks, major league ballparks. Detroit, Pittsburgh, Cincinnati, St. Louis, New York, Boston. We were in Arizona. We went to Old Candlestick Park in San Francisco on our honeymoon. And it was not uncommon for the upper deck at Old Comiskey Park to be filled with nothing but Cleveland Indians fans. They could not get a ticket at home, so they traveled. It was not uncommon for families to give Cleveland Indians tickets as gifts because they were in such demand. But we never, we could rarely get our hands on them. So we did a lot of traveling. And sometimes I would be sitting in some ballpark Joe Robbie Stadium, where the Dolphins used to play, where the Marlins used to play, or Turner Field in Atlanta, or Coors Field in Denver. And I would look next to me, and Donna would be munching away on her hot dog and drinking her Diet Coke. And I would say, you know what? I'm really grateful that I have this woman who likes baseball. In fact, she likes baseball so much that she agreed to get married to me on a ball field. And we planned it out pretty well. In Canton, Ohio, Thurman Munson Stadium. At the time, before our marriage, it housed Cleveland's AA team, the Canton Akron Indians. And then that team couldn't get a new ballpark built, so they moved to Akron. And today, they're the Akron Rubber Ducks. Now, that, that stadium is empty. But after the Indians moved, that became a Frontier League team. And Canton's team was the Canton Crocodiles. And so I approached the Canton Crocodiles, and I asked them, if we got married on the ball field, could we do it before a game? They were loving it. It was a whole promotional thing for them. We invited our family to the wedding. They could wear shorts and caps and bring their gloves. Donna got escorted to home plate for the marriage ceremony by none other than Joe Charbonneau, the 1981 AL Rookie of the Year for the Cleveland Indians. It was epic. And my father loved it because he didn't have to dress up. I love baseball on the radio. I love the radio and I love baseball, so it's a perfect marriage. When I was a kid, I would have that transistor next to my ear on the pillow. And after my twin brother Mark went to sleep, I would roll through the dial, seeing how many games I could pick up, seeing how many stations were broadcasting baseball well into the night. 
I spent many a night listening to Ernie Harwell and the Detroit Tigers and WJR. Jack Buck and the Cardinals and KMOX. Marty Brenneman and Joe Nuxall and WLW in Cincinnati. Texas Rangers, the Atlanta Braves, the Boston Red Sox. And I prefer sitting on the porch, listening to the game with a beverage. It reminds me of standing in the outfield, inhaling that wonderful concoction inside my glove. That tinny voice coming through the transistor receiver. And some days I prefer to listen to the radio rather than watch it on television because I know sooner or later that connection to the game, which is a connection to us, that connection to the game on the radio will go away. And I want to soak up every single bit that I can. I mean, is there a game that's more perfect? That's played outside? That has no timer? And while it needs to be sped up, and there needs to be improvements to the game, how odd and bizarre and wonderful is it that you can overrun first base, but you can't overrun second base or third base? The concept of the double switch, the righty-lefty matchup, the strategies that are going on constantly in any game, the middle of July, as long as there's not a pandemic. The chess match that's unfolding in front of us. Read Buzz Bisinger's book, Three Nights in August. It'll lay out that chess match in full detail. All of the things that are happening during any one baseball game. I recall my father taking us for the first time to Municipal Stadium and walking up the ramp. And the darkness of that ramp becoming lighter and lighter as we got to the top of the ramp. And finally at the top, it's like the world opened up. And in front of me was this expansive field of green, so green it hurt my eyes. And the smells of food, and of course at Old Municipal Stadium, beer and urine and everything else, it was intoxicating. And the sound of wood striking a baseball, the reverberation that it sends throughout the interior of a complex, was the most thrilling thing that I'd ever heard. It's still thrilling to this day to watch that little white pill fly out into the outfield. And I remember even as an eight or nine year old, almost in a state of awe, in a state of wonder, Between two pitches being thrown, so much was happening. Guys were readjusting their position, grabbing their crotch, adjusting their hat, signaling to another player some secret coded message. And knowing that if 
the Indians lost today, there was always tomorrow. That was the beauty of it. That is the beauty of it. And now change is on the way. And I think sometimes change is good. I always had a mild problem with Chief Wahoo. Not so much a problem that I didn't have Chief Wahoo tattooed on my right calf, because I did. When I was living in Knoxville, I found a picture of the old Chief Wahoo at bat that stood outside of the stadium that was perched on top of old Municipal Stadium when we would come down East Ninth and pull into a parking lot, and that was the thing that greeted you. And I said to the guy, I found this picture and I want it on my calf, and he did it, and he did a great job. But it wasn't too terribly long after that that I started to feel a little uncomfortable about Chief Wahoo. And even back then, I had my issues with the name, and I had my issues certainly with the symbol. And even though that symbol, like thousands of other Indians fans, represents all of those same things that I just mentioned, their experience going to the ballpark with their dad or their grandpa, playing catch, playing with their friends out in the field, visiting opponent ballparks for the first time, and proudly wearing your team's gear, proudly wearing cheap Wahoo on a hat or a t-shirt. These things form really deep connections for us. But gratefully, I think we are getting past the connection, and, and granted, we're getting a little push by the events that surround us right now. But I think that push is a necessary push. And I know that there are going to be Indians fans who disagree with me. But it was shortly after a trip we took out west that I had a tattoo artist cover up Chief Wahoo's face on my leg and put in the old 70s Cleveland Sea on top of it. And I remember thinking, you know, there's going to be a time when we're going to discuss the name, too. Because there are a lot of associations with Indians that just don't feel right. And I guess I hold to the theory that if it has the potential to cause dismay, if it has the potential to be controversial, that it might be better to lean in the direction of finding another way or figuring something else out. Because the Indians are just a name of a team. They're just one part of this game, this wonderful, glorious game that is in the throes of struggle and, and who knows, 10 years from now may not even be close to what it is today, or it may not be in existence at all. But I look around my room down here to the left of where I record with all of my Cleveland Indians memorabilia. And I'm so grateful that I have a connection to this game and I have a connection to this team 
And I find it easier to disassociate myself with the name than I thought I would. It's okay. Because sometimes I just like to stop when I see a game, a high school game. Kids playing in a little league game. A game that has no bearing on my life. Two teams that I'm not betting on, I'm not rooting for. They're just playing baseball. And it reminds me about the perfection of this game. And I'm really grateful that my father taught us how to catch a ball and made us want to be interested in this game. He didn't teach me how to pound a nail into a piece of wood, which I probably would have appreciated today. But he, t- <laughs> but he taught me how to catch a ball. And for that, I'm very grateful. Very grateful for baseball. I tell my friends Ron and Gary, even if you don't like baseball, you should have a team that you follow. You should look at a box score. Look at the game results. Know how many games out of first your team is. Have a hat with your team's logo on it. It doesn't hurt. It's a, it's a diversion. It's a diversion from the complexities of life. They used to sell a t-shirt and it had a picture of a baseball and a bat. And it said, baseball is good. I can't think of any better way to put it. Hopefully you're a subscriber to the Gratitude Journal podcast. I realize now that the podcast is also on Stitcher and it's also on the Google podcast platform. So I think that every major platform for podcasts is covered. (laughs) I believe so. Well, as the numbers climb, here's hoping you're not a part of those numbers. And you may not personally agree with me, and that's okay. That's the brilliant thing about being in this country. But I would urge you to don a mask. I think it helps. I think the evidence is there. I'm finding less and less evidence to convince me to the contrary. And I'll continue to sort of grudgingly wear my mask because I would like to protect you from me. And I would hope that you would reciprocate. So until then, here's hoping you're well, that you stay cool. And it's Matthew here, thanking you for listening and downloading another episode of the Gratitude Journal Podcast.